The COVID-19 pandemic is a unique moment in our history. These are the stories from the front lines, featuring visits with the heroes who are making a difference when we need them the most, and ideas on how to stay well and balanced as we learn to live in physical distance. From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, this is The Front Lines of COVID, a surgery set series. I'm your host, Jonathan Kohler, a pediatric surgeon trying my best. Welcome. A few episodes back, I talked with Rebecca Minter, our department chair, about the high-level response to COVID-19 and how the organization had moved mountains to be prepared for a surge of patients. She mentioned the work of our division chair of acute care and regional general surgery, Ben Zarzar, in standing up our disaster response. So I called him, and we talked more about the role he's found for a surgeon in treating what is, for the most part, a non-surgical disease. For all that he's a titan in the world of trauma surgery, Ben is also a remarkably calm and understated guy, so it was amazing to hear how he's come to be an authority on disaster response. It could easily be the plot of an action movie. And the surgical expertise that's helped us manage this medical crisis. So Ben, thank you so much for joining us to talk about what I think is a really fascinating concept that I hadn't really thought about when the pandemic was first started, which is the role that surgeons play in a pandemic event. When I first heard about the pandemic, I thought like the role for surgeons here is gonna be to get out of the way, to cancel our ORs, to make our PPE available, and then let medicine do what they do. But it's become increasingly clear that there actually really is a role for surgeons and specifically for a role for one surgeon, which is you, in, in thinking about our pandemic response. Can you talk about how you've engaged the pandemic response for a condition that does not actually have a good uh, operation to cure it? You know, I think that for, for me, I was like, you know, pretty much many, uh, many people who were going through the stages of, of grief. You know, I was in denial and then, uh, you know, I had this sort of this bargaining going on. Uh, you know, I've got, I've got trips planned. I don't need to cancel those trips yet. And I started thinking about, well, what if somebody, one of my family members came to the hospital and, and had COVID or, or let's say that they came to the hospital and they didn't and they, they needed some sort of urgent or emergent care, trauma, you know, the a perforated intestine, something, and they needed to be taken care of. And if we weren't ready to care for people, no matter whether or not they had COVID or not, you know, they could potentially, they could potentially die or, you know, suffer some sort of, you know, bad morbidity that they wouldn't otherwise have suffered. That would occur because we'd run out of resources, either human or, you know, other uh, physical resources, space. And if we don't plan appropriately, we won't be able to to care for COVID patients, nor will we be able to care for the patients that we know are still going to come through the doors. And, um, you know, many of those patients are, are, are surgical. Being in a, a, an acute care surgeon and, and, this, and an intensivist, you know, I thought, you know, that's going to impact my, my clinical practice quite a lot because, um, you know, we don't do very many elective cases. You know, most of the stuff we do is going to be emergent or urgent anyways. So I, I felt like I needed to to do something to help organize at least our group. And, uh, you know, I'll be honest, I was you know, pretty stressed out about it, just thinking about how to do this because we hadn't, we had plans for an urgent surge. So like a mass casualty incident. So we have plenty of plans for that. Yeah. But this is going to be a sustained response over a period of time. And that's a lot different. I mean, a sprint's a lot different than a marathon. And the way you strategize about a sprint is different than when you strategize about a marathon. And this is going to be a marathon disaster, not a, not a sprint disaster. And so we had to, you know, I had to think about it differently. That's kind of how I got started in, in getting involved and just saying, hey, we need, to, we need to get started now 
on planning because if we don't get going now, we're gonna we're gonna be way behind the eight ball if we are in the middle of a surge and trying to plan. So true. I, I feel like in many of the conversations we've had around the, the podcast, we've come back to Elizabeth Kubler Ross and the five stages of, of yeah. death and dying and grief, right? I mean, and I remember for me being very much in the same boat, sort of thinking, oh, this is it's a flu, you know, it's like it's it's mostly confined to China. It doesn't seem like a big deal. And then I remember like hearing there were cases here. And then I remember vividly being in the hallway in the operating room and reading something on my phone about how 10% of COVID patients at that point, they were estimating were going to need to be intubated. Yeah. And I was like, wait a second, we, there's no way we can do that. Like we have, the building will not sustain that many people on ventilators. And that's when it really hit me. And it's like, oh my gosh, this is like a real thing that's going to cause a huge impact on everything we do. For me, that was just like, oh my gosh, I really hope somebody has a plan. And, and, and for you, it was, this actually was, was something, I mean, not a pandemic, but this is some, something you have some experience with managing emergent medical events, right? You've, you, you worked for, for some time with FEMA and have some background in this. One of the things I had a, the chance to do really started off when I was in North Carolina. God, it's been quite a long time ago now. But um, I was on a state medical assistance team started there. And it was a kind of like a, you know, a team that would set up a field hospital within the state if there was some disaster. Uh, usually a hurricane was sort of the scenario in uh, North Carolina to help shore up uh, hospitals, uh, particularly on the, you know, near the coast, if and, and when a, a hurricane came along. So that's where I first got introduced to this idea of a disaster response and sort of a large scale. And um, our, our teams were deployed to uh, Katrina, uh, response to Katrina to Waveland, Mississippi. The team, the, the whole team was down there probably, oh, you know, several weeks, I lead it into months and uh, replaced a, a hospital, essentially a trauma center that was down in uh, Waveland, Mississippi. I got interested in, in wanted to stay involved in that when I moved back to Memphis. Gosh, I guess it was 2004, maybe sometime around then. I went to a talk by a guy who had been deployed to Katrina with an urban search and rescue team in New Orleans. I went up to him afterwards and said, hey, you know, I'm really interested in getting involved in this. Now that I'm here, here's what happened to me, you know. Uh, and the next thing I know, I'm getting emails from him and I'm taking classes and learning about water rescue, learning about high angle rescue, learning about, you know, digging people out from underneath the rubble and all the things you need to do for that, all the medical parts to that, uh, caring for the team that's doing the searching and then also caring for any patients or victims that you find and uh, how to care for them in the first three or four days until you can get them evacuated. Or even while they're underneath a pile of rubble, how do you start an IV on, an, on the only thing you can see is an arm? You know, how do you do a good assessment? You know, like these kinds of things, just training to do that. It took, you know, literally hundreds of hours of training um, not just about incident command, but all the other stuff that you have to do. And then, you know, just the mental preparation of climbing through a, a very confined space, you know, to a point where you have to suck in your breath, move, breathe, because you can't, you can't be in total <laughs> inhale. Right. Move. So you have to exhale, move, breathe, oh <laughs> exhale, move, breathe, yeah. and just being able to control your, yourself in that kind of environment. So anyways, so it was lots of, lots of training. And then the opportunity to, drill continually on a quarterly basis with the team and then uh and then obviously deploy to you know various disasters 
you know, probably the one we were the most active uh, was when I was on the team and got called up was Hurricane Sandy hmm. in New York. Uh, we did other things too, but uh, that was probably the most sustained deployment we had. Had a few other small local ones where tornadoes would come and we would, you know, go go search the houses in the area, but that those didn't usually last very long. I'm looking for the right metaphor to think about the pandemic, right? And we talk about war a lot, you know, we're fighting an invisible enemy, we're foot soldiers, you know, I talked to Rebecca Minter and it was sort of like talking to the general, but I don't know, I go back and forth. I think like, you know, hurricane's another good one. You know, you, you, you can sort of see it coming, you can watch the tide rising and there's only so much you can do except try to sort of mitigate the damage, right? You're never gonna be able to turn the track of the storm. And crawling through a tunnel where like you can barely fit and you can hardly breathe, like that seems pretty, <laughs> on the nose as well for like kind of what this has all felt like. So having had those experiences, that like remarkable amount of experience in these sort of non-standard, just like working in an ER in an operating room settings, how has that informed uh, the plan that you put in place? And, and just tell us a little bit specifically about kind of how you approached putting a plan in place and what that plan kind of looks like. You know, I, I started thinking, you know, well, actually, I've, I've been in these environments all the time. You know, I'm, and I'm, I live in uncertain times and, and during times of uncertainty. And I, I mean, I have this talk with the residents a lot, just even how do you deal with the trauma patient? You don't even know what's going to come through the door or in a, in, when, you know, everything's going to hell in a handbasket in the operating room or in the trauma room. And you've got a patient who you're really worried about. How do you maintain control and don't, don't lose it? Because if you lose it, then everybody around you will lose it. And that's part of being a leader in the operating room or the trauma bay. It's no different here. I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty. The number of unknown unknowns was, was huge and, and still is in, in a lot of respects. And so in that type of environment, you know, I, I think you just have to rely on, okay, what's right in front of you? What can I do to affect what's right in front of me? I can't do any, the past honestly doesn't matter anymore. Mm -hmm. It's the past and you can take some learnings from it, but what might've been valid two or three days ago is not going to be valid anymore. You can't predict the future out to any real extent. Yeah. So just do the best with what you have right now and um, what the, what's in front of you and uh, make the decisions based on that rather than trying to project or, or look back to the past and say, okay, well, this worked five five days ago. Well, it may not work right now. And um, same thing goes when you know when I'm resuscitating a patient. I think about the same thing. You know, what their their, their physiology changes over time, and and what worked an hour or two hours ago may not work now as their lungs develop worse compliance or their heart, you know, gets stiffer. The, the you know things change in their physiology, so you need to respond to it. Same thing goes here. So there's the systems in place in order to 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 respond to disasters. Incident command system is one of them. And that's a great way to organize a response that sort of cuts across silos and looks at things in terms of competencies and, and resource management. And that's a, you know, you can go online and if you Google FEMA incident command training, you can, you can find, you know, plenty of uh, uh, classes that are put on by FEMA. Um, and various levels of, uh, of the of training. And that gives you a good overview of how, how it works. The other thing that I, I think is interesting was we had read as part of our uh, administrative council uh, group and leadership group in the Department of Surgery um, here, Stanley McChrystal's book, uh, Team of Teams. And um, I started thinking about the, the type, the way that they, they organized their team to respond to an enemy that was ever-changing and, 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 very, and very agile. 
and what types of systems have they put in place to, to, help, to help do that? We were, we're also working in an environment that we need to be very agile. And the way you approach those types of problems are, are, are different. So you need to have teams that can not only have a lot of communication within themselves, but also a lot of cross-communication with other teams. So that's why everybody's you know, conference calls and, and have exploded. Email is really not efficient. It's too asymmetric in a communication mo- model. You have to have talking uh, or at least real-time sort of chat. That's why these WhatsApp groups uh, have taken off. I think that's why, you know, you, like I said like before, your, your conference calls schedules are probably blown up. Mm-hmm. It's because people are trying to get organized and, um, and have, have a, a single awareness, which is essentially what we kind of came up with. We needed to understand things and be real in the same exact direction, even to the point where we came up with a new mission. You know, our mission was to provide remarkable healthcare to all who need it and whether they have COVID or not, frankly. And we just started thinking about that. Well, how do we make that happen? If that's mm-hmm. our only mission, then how do we do it? That's how we started thinking about our response. And first from an administrative level, and then how are we gonna operationalize this? Thinking about how we operationalize things, we had to have a, a, a sort of a paradigm and the Society of Critical Care Medicine had a good primer on how to take care, or how to think about taking care of patients using these teams where you had a sort of an expert leading four subunits of uh, teams to take care of patients in the ICU. So we adapted that for our uh, trauma and acute care surgery service as, as well as for the ICU. That's where we got kind of in, in developed a process for how we would do that. And then really tried to break it down to make it understandable for anybody that wanted to repeat this process. So um, we decided that we needed to understand people's competencies and what things they needed to do in order to uh, be a part of uh, one of these teams. So we needed to develop, okay, what does a, a level one type provider need to have? And when I mean level one provider, they're like the content expert. A level two provider would be somebody who's kind of like an adjacent content expert. So like you've got some of the experience you need, but you don't, you're not, you're not the, maybe the board certified intensivist, for example. Right. And then a level three provider would be somebody who functionally or legally needs some help guidance. And so, you know, think uh, APPs or residents would sort of be that, but also could be an attending who mostly functions in an outpatient environment. I mean, they could still function as a resident or APP on a service. And then a level four provider would be functionally an intern. So somebody who is relatively naive, a volunteer, a medical student, a, uh, or an in- actual intern. You know, um, <laughs> And so, you know, that's how we started thinking about that kind of, those types of providers. And then we developed a way, an, an algorithm and a survey to ask questions that would help basically fit people into one of those buckets and distribute that to the health system. So then you have a list of everybody assigned by tiers. The other thing that I thought was remarkable was, you know, we took however many services are operating in the hospital under however many different call schedules and coverage plans. And, and that's now basically been consolidated into just kind of one way of doing things. Yeah. So in order to make this, so you have to have the, the, the competencies of your people and understand what they, what their jobs they need to do and then what their rating is essentially. So you can plug them into different gaps, but they have to be operating on the same operational schedule. Everybody has to be on the same exact schedule because if they're not, then you won't be able to sort of take one person out. Let's say they get sick and then plug another person in. That's just not going to happen because right. they'll be like, Oh, I'm on call or, or, you know, oh, I've got, I've got five cases tomorrow. I you know I can't do that. Mm-hmm. So to make it plug and play, 
we needed to, uh, to unify our operational schedules, which is not something that more people do. I mean, that's just, you know, not typically what you do, number one. And then number two, you have to start with the ICU or a COVID intense environment. Like how, how many days in a row is an appropriate amount of time to spend taking care of patients who have COVID? Like what's too much? Mm-hmm. And then balance that against um, what is too many handoffs. We came up with five days. I mean, it's, it's a, it seemed like a good compromise between too many handoffs and, but not enough continuity yeah. uh, versus spending too much time in the unit. And then uh, the other thing we discussed or, or decided about that was if you had five days off, you, know, you might be able to recover a little bit, but you might also start becoming symptomatic if you were going to get symptomatic. So it had a sort of a practical function too. So anyhow... Uh, that's how we came up with five days. And then we just said 12 hours is, you know, sort of a, a standard time just so we don't have to use three people in a day instead of just two. Then we back that out to every other department in the, in the uh, health system. Uh, surgery is probably the first to adapt it. And then uh, anesthesia, medicine, and then, uh, you know, other services as well now. It's really cool. I mean, I think one of the remarkable things to see in all of this has been how under the, the threat of the pandemic, like we've really gotten everybody kind of rowing together in the same direction. I'm really interested to see whether that changes the way we practice medicine in the post-pandemic era. I mean, what do you think that the back end of this looks like? What what do you hope we keep from this as lessons learned that can be applied kind of day in and day out about how we practice medicine? So in order to get everybody moving in the same direction, I mean, it's a lot of talking and a lot of, you know, a group of people with a vision and then just just sticking with it. I, I always talk about this in terms of research, but I think it's also true with regard to something like this. So I, I love uh, The Walking Dead, the, um, the, uh, the show. Yeah. Uh, do, you, do you know this, this show? Yeah, the, the zombie show. Yeah, yeah. So I yeah. used to think, yeah, I was like, what's, you know, what's the show about a zombie apocalypse? Well, actually, it's, it's great. I love the, you know, sort of the human nature parts of it. But one of the things about the, are the zombies. You know, they, they, they will, you have to, in order to kill a zombie, you have to you know, stab it in the head. Like that's the only way to kill the zombie. But up until that point, I mean, you could chop its arms off, you could chop its head off, and it's still gonna be trying to bite you. you know, that's relentless. I mean, they are relentlessly pursuing their goal of turning other humans into zombies. Like that's their goal. Yeah. And um, you have to be just as relentless. You know, have this focus and just continue dripping away at it. And if somebody starts to worry or get a little moving out of this, uh, you know, kind of what we'd expect, then, um, you know, I think you have to try to rein them back in again. You have to be relentless and just keep people sort of focused on the mission and, uh, and and this constant bi-directional communication amongst teams and try little, little experiments and then little tweaks of little changes. And I think, you know, we don't typically do that as a health system and we don't typically have like intense communication. We don't, we're not always focused on the same things. We're almost all, we're all, we're very siloed in a lot of ways. And if I were to say there's one thing that I would hope that would come out of this is that we would learn to be less siloed and move in the same direction together with some overarching principle, but really, and instead of just platitudes, like a real thing, you know, I think that's what a pandemic does. Like it's real, you can sort of in, in a way touch it. Yeah. Um, it's not quite and, the zombie apocalypse, but it kind of gives right. you the idea. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's more real. Right. Yeah. And, uh, And this is, it's a little more esoteric to say, well, we're going to deliver, you know, remarkable healthcare. Like that's a more esoteric concept. So I really think, you know, if we could take something away from this, it would be the lessons we've learned about communicating 
having a mission that really inspires people and, and, and drives them to do the work that they should, you know, that they love to do anyways. That's what I think we harnessed in this particular situation. We were able to get people to rally around a really relatively straightforward concept and, and mission and then, uh, and then get people like on the same page. And I mean, we, we changed people's schedules. I mean, like you can never do that. <laughs> so, um, I mean, the operating rooms work in 24, uh, seven days a week, you know, at, at the same capacity as it does on a Monday, as it does on a Sunday, like, that's unheard of. So we you know, if you're able to make those kinds of changes in the pandemic time, you know, why can't we do the same things in, in regular times? Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. And this has been so hugely informative and just a, a great reminder of the role that surgeons have, you know, not just with our hands, but, but with our minds and our experience and, and roles that we can play. So thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. And I'll, I'll talk to you later, Jonathan. All right. Take care. Thanks so much. Ben Zarzar is the UW Division Chair of Acute Care and Regional General Surgery and holds a Master's of Public Health degree in Epidemiology. It's all very convenient. We've got additional resources in the show notes. It's what, the seventh week of lockdown? Here in Wisconsin, we're taking baby steps to reopen. If I played golf, I'd probably notice more of a change. We're working on getting testing ramped up, and our governor has put out a data-driven plan for a return to, if not the old normal, at least a durable new one. I find myself becoming more at home with being more at home, and of the simple pleasures of a life in relative solitude. Which reminds me of a poem by William Butler Yeats, a sort of anthem for us introverts, called The Lake Isle of Innisfree. I will arise and go now, and go to Innisfree, and a small cabin built there of clay and wattles made. Nine bean rows will I have there, a hive for the honey bee, and live alone in the bee-loud glade. And I shall have some peace there, for peace comes dropping slow, dropping from the veils of the morning to where the cricket sings. There midnight's all a glimmer, and noon a purple glow, an evening full of the linnet's wings. I will arise and go now, for always, night and day, I hear lake water lapping with low sounds by the shore. While I stand on the roadway or on the pavement's gray, I hear it in the deep heart's core. have an experience with COVID-19 you'd like to share or a question you want answered on the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out to me on Twitter at J.E. Kohler. That's K-O-H-L-E-R. You can also send us an email at podcast at surgery.wisc.edu. If you want to hear about something other than COVID-19, our regular program is focused on the latest innovations in surgery, including interviews with the pioneers at its cutting edge. If you're new here, feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review the podcast. Give our Facebook page a like and follow us on Twitter at Whisk Surgery. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Bonnie Farber, J.P. Swenson, and me, Jonathan Kohler. 
It was edited by J.P. Swenson. Special thanks to Nicole Jennings, Rebecca Minter, and everyone else in our department pulling together during this adventure. Until next time, be well and stay in touch, friends. Remember, you can't stop the clock. This too shall pass.